Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we'll take you through the best bits of Built to Last by Jim Collins and Jerry Porras, Successful Habits of Visionary Companies. This was a book from the what, early 90s, mid-90s, uh, Jim Collins, who went on to write Good to Great. And this one's a look uh, at how do you make a, an enduring company. So, it's not about this having a charismatic visionary leader. It's not having about this magical idea that just kicks off and just takes off all around the world. It's nothing to do with magic product concepts or visionary marketing sites. What it all boils down to is something far more enduring something far more important, something far more substantial, and that's building the visionary company itself. So, the visionary companies are really the premier institutions. They're the crown jewels in their industries, widely admired by their peers. They've got a fantastic track record of making some serious impacts on the world around them and within their industry. So, the key point here is that visionary companies are organizations. They're essentially institutions. If you just think it's all about the leader, well, sooner or later the leader's going to die. He's <laughs> you know, you've got the can. You've got Walt Disney creates um, some awesome magic, creates Mickey Mouse, and pulls all these things out. But at some point, Walt Disney's going to die. So it's important that Walt Disney has created the company Disney that lasts long beyond him. So Jim and Jerry they set out with a team of researchers to find out what are these underlying elements of these awesome companies that stood the test of time and have really been built to last. So, the key criteria they were after was they had to be the top dog institution in their industry. They had to be widely admired by all the knowledgeable business people in the world and they need to have made a serious impact on the world and had multiple generations of chief executives beyond the founding partner like your Walt Disney's. And they must have gone through multiple product or service life cycles through different kinds of disruptions within an industry and been founded over 50 years ago. So, at the time of writing, uh, before 1950. So, Jimmy and Jerry, they set off on this six-year project to try to find, well, firstly, they want to find what are these uh, awesome visionary companies and then they want to find some similar companies who are basically like their cousin companies that were pretty good but just not quite as good. Didn't um, quite get there. They weren't, it's not that those ones were shocking. It's just that the visionary ones are much better. So, they're all very well-known names. Some of the comparison companies are your likes of Wells Fargo, General Motors, Texas Instrument, Pfizer, Colgate, Chase Manhattan. They're obviously massive companies in their own right, but they were the comparison ones. The real visionary companies, the ones that they selected with the top of the top of the top, are the names like 3M, American Express, Boeing, Ford, General Electric, IBM, Hewlett-Packard, Johnson & Johnson, Sony, Walmart, Disney... Um, there's some pretty phenomenal mm. names that even uh, 25 years later, most of them are still kicking pretty strong. So, they were built to last. So, one way of measuring their performance is obviously with the stock market. If you invested in these comparison companies, the ones were pretty good but not ridiculously amazing. $1 in 1926 would grow to $955 by 1990. So, what, just under uh, just under 60 for years, you're making it quite a good mm. ROI on that. If that was an extra turn, you'd be pretty happy. But mate, if you invested in these visionary companies who are obviously next level, one buck in 1926 would get you to $6,356 by 1990. That's pretty good. That's mate, not bad. It's, it's very good. Every dollar you put in turns into almost six and a half grand. And so, when you compare that just to the average market, so the comparison companies, they beat the average market by two and a half times. So, that's still pretty good. If you can beat the market by two and a half times, that's phenomenal. But these visionary companies, they beat the market by about 16 times, which is obviously a lot better. So, in this episode, we're going to go through all the findings of these six-year chase 
that Tom and Jerry. <laughs> Tom and Jerry. Isn't that the cat and the mouse, the old cartoon? Yeah, I don't know my mind. Well, it's a bit of a chase, chasing the cat and mouse. I mean, Jim and Jerry. Sorry, Tom. Uh, what they found. So, we're going to be going through the tyranny of the ore, clock building, not time telling, cult-like cultures, try a lot of stuff and keep what works, and good enough never is. Over a million people in third world countries were suffering from what is known as river blindness. It was when these parasites get inside your body tissue, they work their way around. Eventually, they get to the brain and the eyes and they eat away at this vital tissue and cause blindness. Sounds like a pretty horrendous thing to get. Um, And one company named Merck, M-E-R-C-K, they thought, well, a million people, that's a lot of people. That's a big problem we can solve. And they went about creating a product that would kill those parasites and cure river blindness. So even though a million people is a seriously good-sized market, the people who risk in this third world country, they couldn't afford the product. And Merck, they hoped that some governments or some third-party agencies could buy medicines off them and then distribute it, but no one did. Mm. So they basically got this product ready and then they just got millions of people there in their market who just can't afford their product, but they're still suffering. Yeah, so there's a million people sitting there. You've got the medicine. No one wants to buy it. The people can't pay for it. The governments aren't going to do it. What do you do? It's The easiest thing for them to do is just say, bad luck. Unfortunately, we've missed out. It's going to be pretty cheap for them to destroy it and move on to something else. But Merck, they thought, no, nah, we can't do that. Let's give it away ourselves. So they spent um, so much more money on top of what they'd already spent researching and developing this product to actually distribute this product to these million people around the world. Even though it cost them a hell of a lot of time and money and opportunity cost, they thought this is the right thing to do. So clearly profit wasn't their only goal. And Merck, we're talking about one of the visionary companies that we set out in the book which is pretty counterintuitive because you think a lot of companies, if you ask a quarterly earnings per share or something, mm. there'll be a lot of boards thinking, what the hell are you doing? That You're not actually going to make money off this. But for them, the company saw themselves in the business of preserving and improving human life. And that's why they exist in this world and this aligned with their core purpose. Yeah, that's like your core value. Imagine if your core value that you're telling all your employees are saying, we're here to preserve and improve human life. And then they say, oh, shit, no one bought our product, let's get rid of it. That uh, is obviously very counterintuitive. So a lot of companies um, and a lot of bad companies are thinking it's either or. Either you're going for profits or you're going for purpose. But these visionary companies, they were able to really get that right balance of both. They can have profit and purpose. So whatever their purpose is, this core ideology is very vital. It's a primary element in the development of all these visionary companies. It's them putting some metaphorical stake in the ground saying, hey, this is who we are, this is what we stand for, and this is what we're all about. So the visionary companies, profit maximization wasn't the dominant driving force. What they did instead, they tended to pursue a clear cluster of objectives that was around their vision or their stake in the ground. And making money, of course, is necessary, but it wasn't at the top of the list. It was basically a side product of them going after their purpose. So this purpose or profit dilemma is what uh, Jim and Jerry call the tyranny of the or. You know, most companies think that you can have A or B, but not both. You know, you can have change or stability. You can be conservative or bold. You can be low cost or high quality. Or of course, you can have profit or purpose. But if you get stuck in that tyranny of the or, that's when you're going to be just, you know, humming along like everybody else. You're not going to be one of these visionary companies going 16x, the market returns. Uh, Counterintuitively, if you don't have profit as your first and most important goal, actually, you're probably going to profit a fair bit, which is interesting. So these, these visionary companies, they were able to straddle both. They were able to have 
uh, profit and purpose. They were able to be conservative and risky. They were able to have control and autonomy. And they were also able to maximize both the short term and the long term. Throughout the book, he finds this the yin-yang symbol, which represents where two opposites can actually coexist and come together to be better than the individual element. For example, you need both the preserving the core and also stimulating progress. So the core, you've got your core products, your continuity and your stability and your old processes that you're carrying along. But you also need progress, a certain amount of innovation, continual change, new directions, new methods, new strategies. So you can't go extreme one or the other. You need to have both coexisting at the same time. Yeah, so these visionary companies had a strong core. So they were very true to their tradition. So Disney created Disney University where all their employees attended seminars called Disney Traditions where they learned about the history of the company. Or then you've got like HP who have got the HP way, which is this institutionalized policies, which is all about sticking to their core. And on the other hand, they're all about progress as well. So General Electric, they created one of the world's first R&D research and development labs. So they're always looking to the future. And then Boeing took on a series of risky projects that could have ruined the company, but they were willing to take a big risk to make progress like developing the 747 plane. So that's the first element of the visionary companies. It's about the tyranny of awe. You don't have one or the other. You need to have both dichotomies coexisting at the same time. Imagine you met some remarkable person with his big long beard looking a bit like Gandalf and what he'd do, he'd look to the sun of the stars and any time of the day or not, he could tell the exact time and date. He'd say, hey, it's April 23, the year 1493 and it's 1.51 and 13 seconds. And you'd be pretty amazed at this yeah. time, tell, wouldn't you? They, all they need to do is just look at the stars and just go bang. <laughs> that guy's pretty amazing. Uh, you know, you probably think uh, there's some kind of genius, some natural talent they were born with. The newspapers would be writing articles. The, yeah. I don't know what the Netflix of 1493 was, but they'd be making docos about him. Well, you had everyone in the town, all the tribes coming along and going, this dude is absolutely <laughs> insane. However, when that person kicks the can and dies, then all of a sudden no one else can tell the time in the whole yeah. tribe. So then you're in a bit of trouble. Yeah, that's quite bad luck. So something that's much more impressive than someone who can tell the time is actually the first person who built a clock. So that means that long after this magical time-telling person is gone, everybody's still got the clock. And from that point on, everybody can still tell the time for the rest of history. So using this analogy in the business context, having a great idea or having a big charismatic leader is a bit like telling the time. Yes, mm. they're superb for that short term, but eventually every leader is going to go... And uh, instead of doing that, we need to create a company that's going to provide for generations, a bit like building the clock. So it's going to hang around and keep just ticking over and have the systems and processes in place. One uh, time-telling thing that we might get stuck in is just thinking to have an incredible company, you'd have this incredible idea. Uh, and Jimmy calls it the myth of the great idea and that that great idea is actually a bit of a myth. And he tells a story of uh, two recently graduated engineers back in 1937. They were in their early 20s. They had no business experience. They just finished uni, but they met up and said, hey, let's start a company. The only thing was they had no idea what the hell they were going to make. All they knew was it was going to be something in electrical engineering that they wanted to do. So they had absolutely no great idea whatsoever. They couldn't even tell the time at this point and tell the time in the sense of, you know, what's some magical idea that they're going to come up with. So we're talking about Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard here. They're still hanging around. I've got a HP laptop just <laughs> lying around here. So, But what they did is they decided to start a company first. So build the, the clock and then later they worked out what they were going to do. So they really tried anything they could do to make a bit of coin to pay the bills in their garage. 
So they made some foul line indicator for bowling lanes. They made a clock for a telescope, a sensor to automatically flush urinals, and a shock machine to help people <laughs> help people lose weight. It's pretty sadistic, the last one. <laughs> but every time you say, oh, I want some Maccas, bzz, yeah, that's or a anything for weight. a few bucks if you're Bill and Hewlett. <laughs> <laughs> so eventually, they uh, after a whole bunch of flops, they were they built the clock and the clock in the sense of they were constantly looking to create something new. Another company that didn't start with a great idea is the company Sony. Uh, the founder Masaru uh, Ibuka, he uh, just thought, hey, let's make a company. He got a whole bunch of employees together, and literally the first three or four weeks was just everyone sitting around thinking about what can we do. They had a bunch of flops. They tried to make sweetened bean paste. They had some mini golf equipment. They were trying to make slide rules to sell them to schools, and they had all these things that. Obviously, doesn't sound anything like Sony today, but for them, it was all about, uh, you know, let's make this company first that is about innovation until, I don't know, how many decades later, the big bad PlayStation comes along and we're loving it. So, it's pretty counterintuitive here. It's not about the great idea you're starting with. It's about the company itself. So, as you can see, you don't need this massive idea to get started. It's important to get started and then start working towards your ideas incrementally with systems rather than just crazy ideas. So making products, that's essentially time-telling, looking mm. at the watch, being like Gandalf the Great, looking <laughs> in the stars and just being impressive in the moment. But making an enduring successful company, remember we're talking about companies that have hung around for 50 years and are uh, very likely to hang around for another 50, and that's all about clock building. Perhaps one of the best uh, examples of this is General Electric. You got old mate Thomas Edison, he's famous for inventing the light bulb, and you know we know he tried a thousand different times and finally came up with one that worked but he actually over his time invented 1093 different inventions and had 1093 patents on new and crazy ideas and of course what enabled this was because General Electric they built a clock they uh, had what they labeled America's first industrial research laboratory where every day people are coming in and trying new and wacky ideas so being able to create that kind of infrastructure that allows for people to tell the time later on is much better than just coming up with a light bulb one time. So Walt Disney, his best invention wasn't Mickey Mouse. It was Disney, the company, still around today. Sam Walton's, his greatest invention wasn't the superstore concept. It was the corporation, Walmart. So it's a crucial shift in thinking. It is in seeing the company as the ultimate creation and not the product. Now, if you've ever been to a uh, Tony Robbins seminar or if you've ever been to a um, multi-level marketing pitch night or if you've ever been to anything like this where you've got this magical guru up on stage pumping everybody up, it feels pretty amazing. you got like Tony Robbins who's saying, make you move, you pump your chest and he's walking around, everyone's clapping, everyone's dancing. It's a pretty awesome environment to be a part of. Yeah, or if you think of MLM, it's not always necessary to sort of lead it, but if you're just having a, having a you know, glass of water or a beer or a coffee or whatever the cult drink of choice is there you're chatting to someone it, it is this kind of us versus them kind of mm. mentality it, when you're in that environment it's like you're uh, at a, operating at another level or something so all the monotonous drones out there just slaving away at the nine to five kind of job and you do get this cult-like element that you're mm. in this group and there's a cost if you left the group yeah it's big time i watched this documentary about this company called nexium uh the documentary is called Seduced. It started out as this MLM company and then they morphed into this broader sort of personal development training company and then eventually it became a cult and then the next step after cult is sex cult where pretty much everyone who got indoctrinated had to root the, the leader. Yeah. Um, 
which is uh, which is seems to be the way that most cults go. But, it's a pretty uh, good deal for the leader if you're um, if they're all beautiful people. He built a, a very interesting clock. Uh, as to <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what we're what we're saying here is that uh, it seems like a weird suggestion to say that you need to build a cult, but maybe not a cult, but cult-like. So borrow some of these ideas about how do cults come about and how do people become so committed to a cult that they sort of become blinded to the outside world. So just borrowing a few of these techniques to make an awesome company. So this is what the visionary companies were able to do. They were able to make some cult-like atmospheres that everyone wanted to be part of the group. So Disney, for example, they went through important training, or you could almost say brainwashing, to preserve the <laughs> core ideology, right? So every employee, every single employee, no matter what their position level or age, they had to go to Disney University and undertake a class called Disney Traditions. And here they learn about the company's history and it was designed so that new members of Disney's team can be introduced to traditions, philosophies, organizations and the way we do business. So, kind of like um, indoctrination, right? Yeah. Into a <laughs> philosophy and ideology. It really is. They also had this um, tightness of fit. So, they want everybody to really fit within their culture. Um, so, anyone who was uh, a prospective new employee, they went through a minimum of two screenings, which was just conversations with normal staff members. So, not like your HR interviews. This would just be vetted by normal members of the team to see if they fit in. Pretty much, if you if you're a bloke with a beard, you were pretty much straight out. Or if you're a lady with uh, long dangly earrings or heavy makeup, they said, no, you're not going to fit here. There was one actually one story where uh, they tried to go against this beard policy. It was about six decades after Disney was founded and they thought, oh, this is just some archaic old thing that says no beards, but let's just go for it. One bloke grew out his beard and thought he was going to start a strike. A few other blokes joined in, grew their beards, and then the strike leader waltzed into head office and said, let's change these laws, let's wear beards. Uh, very quickly, Disney fired that bloke. <laughs> <laughs> the strike was put to the end, the no beards rule stayed, and uh, pretty much everyone went home, shaved their beards, and got back to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it- uh, using the metaphor of a, a virus, like your immune system just dispelling those <laughs> yeah. germs out of the company just with beards. Not only that, they also had to learn different vocabulary. So, employees, they're called cast members. Customers are called guests. A crowd is an audience. Each work shift is in a performance. The uniform is a costume. The HR department is casting. And when you're on duty, you're on stage. And when you're on break, you're backstage. It's mm. a pretty weird stuff, right? If you're rocking up on day one, and people are using all these terms and and hear about Jimmy who got fired for having a beard. Uh, you'd be a bit worried in a sense, wouldn't you? You have entered a cult. Yeah, exactly. And so, as we say, it's like you're taking some of these things that make a strong cult in terms of and using those to build a strong cult, yeah, strong culture. So, you're borrowing these ideas and, and turning it into a really strong company where everybody is really on the same page and everyone's working together. Now, you might think these visionary companies, they'd be on the top of the, you know, the 100 best places to work. They'd be the top 15 spots. And uh, for some people, it was. For some people, they absolutely loved it. But actually, for some people, they hated this because it was just too constricting. Absolutely. If you're buying into this whole idea that you're a cast member on stage and all that kind of stuff, <laughs> it'd be a lot of fun. But if you just rock up and you're not all about that and don't have the same values, you'd be a bit weirded out and mm. you'd be trying to get away quick smart. So, these visionary companies, they didn't make things easy or fluffy or soft or comfortable or anything like that. They actually were much more demanding of their people. And people didn't love it because it was easy or comfortable. They loved it because they were 
push appropriately hard for the things that they value and their own little quirks in their own character. Yeah, it was very much if you fit in and if you bought fully into the the culture, then you loved it. If you weren't quite in, then you were pretty much straight out. Now, they actually found that of these, uh, the 18 visionary companies, they found that 11 of them had these super strong indoctrination training, uh, as I say, just brainwashing to get them into the cult. Um, 13 of the 18 had this tightness at fit, where it's very much buy in or get out. And then uh, 13 of them actually promoted this feeling of elitism, just this feeling of we're something special. We're part of building something magical here. Everybody here is slightly better than everybody else in the, in the world around them. So, this is the place that I want to be. In 1890, Johnson & Johnson was a primary supplier of antiseptic gauze and medical plasters to hospitals. They received a letter from a physician who complained about patients getting skin irritations from certain medical plasters. Now, Fred Kilmer, the head of research, he responded really quickly by sending a small packet of this soothing Italian talcum powder that he used at home, right? He just used it himself. He thought, oh, see what <laughs> happens here. And he then convinced the company to include a small can of talc as part of standard packaging of certain product purchases. So then to the company's surprise, hospitals started calling him up. Did they have phones? 1890? Maybe they were sending snail mail. Uh, but they wanted more of this talc stuff. They're like, this little jar of powdery centers is awesome. But Johnson Johnson said, well, we don't even really sell this stuff. We just whacked it in there. So they thought, well, maybe we should, maybe we're onto something here. And so uh, they created this new product, which they called Johnson's um, baby powder. And now fast forward and baby powder actually mushroomed and became 44% of their revenue. So from this one little tiny thing this dude used at home and sent out to one patient, um, turned into almost half of the company's revenue. In 1920, another thing happened. A bloke from the company called Earl Dixon, he had a bit of a clumsy wife, <laughs> right? She had a habit of nicking herself and chopping the veggies in the kitchen. So she'd have all these little cuts and just start bleeding everywhere when she was cooking. So Earl here, he made a real makeshift covering for her, taking a bit of surgical tape from the drawer, adding a bit of gauze at the end of the tape so it wouldn't stick to the wound. And it just so happened putting 10 little bits of gauze on 10 pre-cut bits of tape so that they were ready to go whenever his wife needed them. Yeah, so he actually uh, he was just talking about this invention to one of the people at the meeting. They thought, ah, that sounds pretty freaking phenomenal. Pretty cool, yeah. <laughs> and so they thought, okay, well, let's test this out. They did a little bit of experimenting. Of course, they made the sticky stuff better. They made the gauze better. And there's one little random accident this, this bloke was doing because of his wife just kept nicking herself with a knife, of course. This went on to become Band-Aid. And of course, Band-Aid was the biggest selling category in Johnson & Johnson's history. Yeah, thank God for Band-Aids. So, uh, we're all a bit clumsy as well. But really, the theory behind this is Darwin's theory of evolution, which I think you could argue is a meta concept that just touches on almost every theory you can come across in any context. But the idea is Charles Darwin, the big dog, he found the big finding that the species evolved by a process of undirected variations and random genetic mutation via natural selection. Yeah, so there was these uh, mutations, these things that happened and little tiny changes, you know, in evolution was a slightly not longer neck or a slightly pointier beak. These random things happen. Uh, and of course, then the ones that fit their environment better, these are the animals that are most likely to survive. So because of the environmental shifts, the pointy beak is able to get through the crack in the rock and get the worm. So that one survives and then its kid has a pointier beak as well. So it's this survival of the fittest. Yeah, the idea is a bit like branching and pruning. And this is what they found from the visionary companies. They made all of their best moves, not by this strategic planning up front with these huge business cases and everything like that, but rather experimentation, trial and error, just trying a few things out, opportunism, and just by accident, things <laughs> will just pop up. Yeah. 
It's not bad. So basically, they'd branch out with all these random little tests. And then, of course, the ones that worked, they kept them and they went on to become baby powder or band-aids that we all know today. But of course, there's a hell of a lot of crap, the dead wood that they just pruned away. So they'd branch out and then prune away. So this was the fundamental concept in one of my favorite books by Nassim Taleb, Anti-Fragile. And it's this takeaway of seeing errors as investments. Because at the time you're doing it, you're spending a bit of money on something you don't know if it's going to work and there's always mini costs that accumulate over the way. But you can't look at them as errors and just costs. You get to see them as the investments. They're going to have the biggest upside out of everything you do going forward. So Taleb, he called it uh, optionality or tinkering. You got Charles Darwin just called it the evolution. Then you've got uh, Jim Collins and Jerry Porras who called it uh, try a lot of stuff and keep what works. Is that <laughs> so a little Freudian <laughs> slip there, mate? <laughs> no, that's his name, isn't it? And uh, so one company who did try a lot of stuff and keep what works, they went through this branching and pruning, is a company called Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing Company or better known as 3M. So they actually started out as this mine in Minnesota and basically, it was a massive flop. They were just digging up dirt pretty much. So, the, the mine was almost cooked, but the employees said, we love this company. We don't want it to die. What can we do? And so, they started selling some of their mine equipment. Something that really worked for them was sandpaper. So, mm-hmm. this awesome sandpaper, they started selling it. And it was sort of like a good start going away from this dead, dirty mine, more towards a little product like sandpaper. Yeah, they started doing all sorts of things in line with this philosophy. So, in 1907, they set aside a little storeroom, spent 500 bucks on a little bathtub where they could run all sorts of experiments and get to work. And in this unofficial 3M research lab, they made a whole bunch of crap. As you'd imagine, most of it was shit that just never saw the light of day. But every now and then, there was a few diamonds in the rough. Uh, The first was a highly successful cloth abrasive called 3Mite. And the success of this product really paid the serious dividend to shareholders. And over 100 years later, this is actually still a product they're selling today. Yeah, the next big winner was, so they were selling their sandpaper, but sandpaper, when it gets wet, just tears apart and it's useless. So this uh, legend called Francis Oakey, he had this uh, waterproof sandpaper. They called it wet or dry, so sandpaper that works in the wet or the dry. And again, that was another big winner. Fast forward to 1974, a bloke named Art Fry. His name's come up a bit. I swear he wrote a book or something, right? Or he Art worked Fry. for Apple. I don't know. He's a, he's, I've seen his name pop up. Anyway, he was, <laughs> he was singing in a church choir on a Sunday to make it easy to find the songs they wanted to be singing that day. He'd rip up a piece of paper, stick them inside the necessary pages of his hymn book. But of course, every now and then, they'd flop away. They'd fall out of the book, and which is a real pain when <laughs> you're, mid, you're mid-song and the whole crowd's watching, you forget what you're saying. Right? So there's a lot of pain there. So he thought... All right, gee, imagine if I had a bit of glue or something that could put on these little pieces of paper into the book. Then it'd be much more easily to find these pages before they fly away. So they got to work putting a few chemicals here and there, just doing some things, sticky things in the different places and all that. And then what they did is they made the the post-it note. Yeah, that's it. He had to find something that was uh, sticky enough that it stuck, but something that's not so sticky that you can then peel it off and don't rip the page and you can stick it on again later. So it was this massive revolution. And of course, you know, when you look back through history and you pick out, okay, they did sandpaper, they did masking tape, they did scotch cellophane sticky tape, they did post-it notes. It looks awesome. But of course, they had a hell of a lot of flops along the way. It was all about how they built this system around making new inventions, this branching and pruning Again, building the clock, not telling the time. So the clock here has tinkering as part of their systems and processes as a fundamental business idea. 
because if you stay in stagnant the whole time and you're not changing, you're not innovating with everybody else, eventually a smaller player is going to come and pick you off, right? So, none of these things were planned. Like, they were all sort of random, almost accidents along the way that happened. But, of course, you can't just rely on that. They had to build in the infrastructure to make these accidents happen so regularly. So, one of the rules for the company was the 15% rule. And so, that's a rule where employees were allowed to spend 15% of their work week on any random project that grabbed their interest. Like, it could have been going to a different department and spending some time there for 15% of the week, or it could have been like your mate, Art Fry, who thought... uh, of this idea when he was at church and he wanted to just play around at his desk with different sticky stuff and and try to create post-it notes. Yeah, I can imagine some companies on your 15% rule, they take the piss a bit, right? <laughs> they just wouldn't get to work. But if you're part of the cult, then maybe you would, eh? Well, I think Google stole this as well and they bumped it up to uh, 20% time and that's where things like uh, Gmail and, and Google Docs and a whole bunch of stuff came out of Google's 20% time. Another rule they had was a 25% rule. So, every division, that had to make 25% of their sales from new products that were less than five years old. <laughs> so, that means part of that clock, you'd be stressing a fair bit as a manager. You're not trying to keep systems. You're always looking for mm. the new stuff if you actually want to look good. That's a pretty bold rule to have a quarter of your stuff come from brand new products less than five years old. It's pretty incredible. They also had this uh, own business opportunity. So, that's basically if you invent a product, it effectively becomes your baby. It's not like you come up with this sick idea and then it just gets passed up the chain and the big managers get to run it. It's actually, if you know, old mate Art Fry, he makes a post-it note. He actually effectively becomes the boss of the post-it note division, which is a pretty cool incentive as well, a bit of that uh, intrinsic motivation as well. So, propelled by all of these mechanisms as part of this clock that they've got, 3M, they branch into over 60,000 products, over 40 divisions by 1990. So, they went into things like roofing granules, reflective highway signs, video recording tape, overhead projection systems, computer storage disks, and of course, sticky tapes and sandpaper and all post-it notes and all that kind of stuff. So, they've got a pretty diverse portfolio of products. Yeah, they've got a massive, they went through that massive branching and pruning evolution phase that, as uh, Jim Collins says, try a lot of stuff and keep what works. So, if well understood and consciously harnessed, these evolutionary processes of finding variations and keeping what works can be a powerful way to stimulate growth. And that's exactly what these visionary companies did. They forced their companies, they built into the clock of their companies ways to constantly innovate and try new stuff. So, the critical question that visionary companies ask themselves, they didn't ask how well are we doing, they didn't say how can we do well, they didn't say you know, are we, how are we doing compared to our competition. The question that they always asked themselves was how can we do better tomorrow than we did today? So, comfort isn't the objective of a visionary company. In fact, they got all sorts of mechanisms to promote discomfort. They want to obliterate complacency, they want to always be stimulating change and improve before it was forced upon them by the outside world. Yeah, it's like uh, Simon Sinek said in The Infinite Game. He said, better is better than best. So, you don't want to strive to be the best. You want to strive to be better because best is like a destination. Once you get there, you're there. Whereas better is you're always trying to improve yourself. Or as Jim Collins says, good enough never is. You always need to be looking to improve yourself, constant improvement and get better. Got a parable here for you. There was a martial artist. He knelt before his master sensei in a ceremony to receive the black belt. He really working his ass off for a decade to get. The sensei said, before receiving the belt, you must pass one more test. And the student was ready for one final round, get sparring, grappling, give the, the, the boss a smack across the head or something. <laughs> but the sensei asked, what is the true meaning of the black belt? And the student's like, oh, the end of my journey. Well-deserved reward for all this hard work I've done. 
the sensei said, uh, young grasshopper, you are not yet ready for the black belt. Come back in one year and try again. So he slaved away <laughs> for another year of hard training, went back, and sensei asked again, what's the meaning of the black belt? And the student said, a symbol of distinction, the highest achievement of our art, a recognition that I've reached the pinnacle. And he looked on with hopeful eyes. and He was ready. He was hands out, eyes gaze. He was ready to pick up that black belt, but the sensei said, Young grasshopper, you are still not ready. Come back in one year and try again. Now, finally, one year later, he comes back and asks the same question. The sensei says, what is the meaning of the black belt? Like, come on. <laughs> and then the student said, the black belt represents the beginning, the start of a never-ending journey of discipline, work, and the pursuit of an even higher standard, bettering myself each and every day. And since I said, yes, you are now ready for the black belt. You're now ready to begin your work. <laughs> 